So I met recently with um, a girl in our body, and I asked for permission to tell you a little bit about her story. Um, she told me of, of a lot of abuse as a child. Uh, she told me that her mother would go into the room of her siblings, and after doing whatever she did to them, um, she knew that she would be in her room. And she said she would do whatever she wanted to to me because she knew that I would take it. As I listened to that, and as my heart broke for this young girl, I thought about the power of story and the power of events like that to shape who we are. I thought about how that event could define her, it could define how she views herself, it could define how she views other people, it could uh, literally rule her relationships, it could define whether or not she allowed herself to trust again, and so on and so forth, but it, it hasn't. Because she also told me another story about someone coming to her and telling her of the gospel of Jesus Christ and of a relationship with Him. And as I thought about that, I thought about how we all have competing stories. And if we refer to ourselves as Christians and we see ourselves as believers, then in essence, the story of the gospel, the story of the cross, the story of the table set before us must be the defining story of our lives and not all the other competing stories, no matter how horrible, nor no matter how good. What story is defining your life? Notice I didn't ask you, are you a Christian? Have you accepted Jesus in your heart? Uh, Have you given verbal assent? I'm asking you, what is the story? What are the events that are driving the way you look at you? The way that you feel about yourself, what story is defining that? The way that you look at other people, what story is defining that? If it's not the gospel, it is something else. And you see, even if your story is a good one, even if it's, it's full of good events, that's not enough. It's not enough just to have good parents. It's not enough to have just a good life. You see, we were made for more than that. We weren't made just to settle for the love of a good parent, although that's a huge blessing. We weren't made just to settle for the love of a good spouse or good children or good friends, but we were made for perfect love. We were made for the love of God because we were made in His image and He is love. We weren't made for abuse. We weren't made for neglect. And we weren't even made for the love of decent parents. We were made for the love of God Himself. And dear friends, some of you may think, oh, that's just the love of God. That's just some mumbo-jumbo psychological babble. But let me tell you, it is, it is critical and crucial to you understanding yourself and being a Christian for this reason. We were not only made for love, but we were made to love. The very thrust of our lives must be self-sacrificing, self-effacing love for those around us. The very um, commandment of God is summarized in this, love your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your being. 
and love your neighbor as yourself. That is our mission. That is what we were created for. And without drawing down on a love that is greater than anybody on this earth can give us, we're not fulfilling the function for which we've been created. So as a people created for love, created to love, and yet as a people that have experienced sometimes not anything but love, we have to have the love of God in Christ, and that's what he offers. You see, we have to allow his love to shape us. That's what John is getting at in 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves, listen to that, everyone who loves is what? Born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. Wow. So how do we know that we're believers if we love? Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz collide in love. (laughs) What we have in chapter 3 is a collision of love. Let's look at it. Then Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? Is not Boaz our relative with uh, whose young women you were? See, he is winnowing barley tonight at the threshing floor. Wash, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your cloak, and go down to the threshing floor. Do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. But when he lies down, observe the place where he lies. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he will tell you what to do. And she replied, All that you say, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did just as her mother-in-law had commanded her. And when Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. Then she came softly and uncovered his feet and lay down. At midnight, the man was startled and turned over, and behold, a woman lay at his feet. He said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. And now it is true that I am a redeemer, and there is a redeemer nearer than I. Remain tonight and in the morning. If he will redeem you, good, let him do it. But if he's not willing to redeem you, then as the Lord lives, I will redeem you. Lie down until the morning. So she lay at his feet until the morning, but arose before one could recognize another. And he said, Let it not be known that the woman came to the threshing floor. And he said, Bring the garment you are wearing and hold it out. So she held it out, and he measured out six measures of barley and put it on her. Then she went into the city. And when she came to her mother-in-law, she said, How did you fare, my daughter? 
Then she told her all that the man had done for her, saying, These six measures of barley he gave to me, for he said to me, You must not go back empty-handed to your mother-in-law. And Naomi replied, Wait, my daughter, until you learn uh, how the matter turns out, for the man will not rest, but will settle the matter today. I want us to see that Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz had a defining event in their lives that drove them to act the way that they did. First of all, we need to look at Naomi because that's really where the story in chapter 3 starts. Naomi's defining event was not the death of her husband nor the death of her two sons, but God's love and care. I want you to think about what happened to Naomi. She lost her husband in Moab. (laughs) She lost both of her sons in Moab. And she comes back into the city with no one but Ruth. And yet, in this chapter, what we see from Naomi is a woman who is not drowning in bitterness and self-pity, but she is loving her daughter-in-law well by saying... Oh, daughter. She's not her daughter. She's her daughter-in-law. Oh, daughter, I want you to find rest. Isn't that beautiful? She's not letting the horrible events of her life define her posture toward God or toward other people. The relationship between mother and daughter-in-law can be a tough one. Mothers don't often want to let go. Can I get an amen (laughs) from some of you young husbands? (laughs) It is true. And yet what we see in this story is Naomi is not only letting go, but she's letting go, wanting to let go of Ruth so bad, even though it's probably going to mean her further isolation. Naomi loves her well, and she's loving her well here, even though it may leave her alone. How does she do this? How in the world does Naomi have the capacity, as a widow who lost both of her sons? Folks, she should be in survival mode. You see, a husband, it was more than just someone to complete her. It was more than just somebody that could give her companionship and friendship and, you know, give her social status. But this was someone who would protect her. Someone who could provide for her. And the only other person now that can do that for her is Ruth. And yet she wants her to go and be blessed. How in the world does she do this? I think John tells us very clearly when he says perfect love drives away fear. You see, if you're not connected, if you're not being poured into by God, if his story, his love for you, what he's done for you at Calvary is not your defining moment, then something else will and you are going to be driven by fear primarily. But Naomi is not driven by fear. Boy, don't we need to hear this today as parents. And not just those of us who are in our 50s or 60s or older that have grown parents, but we need to hear it as young people who are married too. Because you see, 
God tells us in Genesis 2.24 really what the purpose of parenting is. He said, a man will leave his father and mother. The two will be united. He said, in essence, parents, what your job is, is to pour yourself into children that will leave you and you will have no authority over anymore. A man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. And they will become one flesh. Friends, the purpose of parenting is not to build idols that replace God's love in our lives, but to have and raise children that will spread God's love to the world. Let me say that again. The purpose of parenting is not to produce these little children that become our idols that replace God's love in our lives, but to have and raise children that will spread God's love to the world. To be good parents, the love of God must be more than verbiage for us. To be good parents, we've got to so draw down on the love of God that we are raising our children to obey Him, to glorify Him, and to go out into the world and love Him wherever He may take them. Because it's about His glory and about His love. And how in the world can we do that as parents? Because we love our children more than life itself. We're willing to die for them. So how do we do it? We draw down on the, on the love that we were created to be satisfied with. And that's the love of Christ. Dear friends, your parents... Excuse me. Parents, your children cannot replace the love of Christ. They can only give you a small glimpse and a small taste of His love. So we are raising children to let them go. Now what do you do if your parents aren't letting you go? Dan Allender deals with this in his book, The Intimate Mystery. Listen to what he said. He said, leaving one's parents establishes the primacy of marriage over all other relationships. Marriage is meant to be a statement. I forsake all others for the sake of you. The rub comes, however, in how you handle decisions where the desires of your family are at odds with those of your spouse. Where will we spend the first or twentieth Christmas? Whose family name will mark the first grandson? Will you move for a job or remain close to your family? Will you visit parents on your vacation or take an actual vacation? Countless issues from dinner dates, holidays, money, phone calls, to not talking politics, religion, markets, or childbearing are fraught with the potential division. What happens is that peace tends to be valued over primacy. Peace holds out the promise that someday I will get my parents' or parent-in-law's blessing. We fear we will not receive a blessing if we are independent and fail at doing what our parents desire. Dear friends, what you have to understand if your parents are vying for your loyalty is that only God can truly have your loyalty. And so the only way that you can stand up to your parents, not in a sinful way, but in a righteous way, is to be, is to be drawing down on the love of God for you in your own heart. Only His love will give you patience and boldness to stand up and to say, God commanded me to leave and cleave and I must leave and cleave.
Naomi was not a controlling mother-in-law. She was different. She said, My daughter, should I not seek rest for you, that it may be well with you? We need more parents like that, who understand that the purpose of parenting is to raise children who will love God and the world and not feel something lacking in us. Secondly, that's Naomi. Secondly, Ruth's defining event was not the death of her husband nor her racial makeup, but God's love for her. Ruth's defining event was not the death of her husband nor her racial makeup, but God's love for her. How in the world has Ruth come to the point in her life where she is willing to obey her mother-in-law? How has she come to this point? I mean, what her mother-in-law is asking her to do, what Naomi is asking her to do, is huge. She is asking her to stop her mourning, to take a bath, to put on perfume, to put on her cloak again, and to get back in the game of marriage. And she even defines who she wants her to marry. I want you to go to Boaz. And beyond that, she wants her to wait until he's had a few stiff drinks and a full belly, and he's passed out by his grain to protect it, And then lay down at his feet, uncover his feet, let the cold come in, startle him at some point during the night so that he'll wake up and go, oh, who are you? Now, how many of you ladies would obey your mother-in-law with that kind of plan? And yet Ruth does. How in the world does she do that? She is drawing down on the love of God. There's something beautiful about Ruth's love for Naomi. I think at the very heart of love is submission. And that's for everybody. You submit to those that you love. That's why Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Why? Because you submit your life to the one that you love. And what we see here is Ruth submitting to her older mother-in-law, her mentor, Naomi. Single guys and girls, do you have somebody like Naomi in your life? I love Proverbs 1.5. A wise man will hear and increase in learning, and a man of understanding will acquire wise counsel. I think today, maybe more than any other day, is a day that you need mentors. Because of the breakdown of the family, because of how transient we are, it's time for the church to be the church You see, we can't be the church by simply coming in here, attending a worship service, and then going back to our lives. But we have to come in here, and our lives have to collide and become so interconnected. We have to hear each other's stories. We have to get personally involved. When I listened to this young girl's girl's story, I began to get involved. Have you had counseling? Well, we can help pay for counseling because I know people on Sunday are going to give that money to the Mercy Fund. Do you have an older woman in your life that can mentor you, that can mother you? No, I really want that. Do you see it? 
Our lives have to collide because we're so disjointed we were never meant to do it alone. Do you know God's way of us figuring out life in the Christian life? It's not only by giving us His Word, but it's by giving us each other. He didn't didn't give us a manual. His Word doesn't say, okay, to be a parent, dot, 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 now go do it. To be a great husband, dot, 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 go do it. To be... No. What He does is He says, here's my Word. You guys come together in community, flesh it out, and those that have done it longer, pour into those that have not done it as long as you. And so what we have here is the body of Christ being the body of Christ. We're bending our lives toward each other. And you say, well, I'm not an expert in the Word of God. Then, dear friends, begin to study your Bible so that you can be of some good to somebody else. Do you see the reason that I have to prepare for sermons is so that you can be blessed? And because I don't want to lose my job. I mean, I'll have to admit it. But seriously, I mean, that's the whole point. And yet, the real change, as much as I would love to think that the real change happens in the midst of a sermon, the real change happens in those conversations in a coffee shop, those conversations in a living room or a den, those, coffee sh- those, those conversations in a car, those conversations on the street, those conversations before and after church those conversations in community group or before and after community group, when our lives are colliding together and we we begin to share our stories and we begin to love each other and be concerned for each other and begin to share out of our experiences. And you know, unfortunately, and yet it's true, and it's true for every generation, older people, the best thing that we can share with the younger people are our failures. We need to tell them, this is what we did. Don't do that. We need to tell them what we learned. We need to open the wounds and say, Look, don't be wounded as I've been wounded. You do have something to tell people because every one of us have been wounded. Tell them how God carried you through. If nothing else, what that does for somebody who's just on the front end of their career, front end of a marriage, front end of, 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 of parenting, is to say, Well, somebody made it. God was faithful. God was strong enough to help them through. They're still married. They're, they're kids or whatever, you know. Dear friends, we've got to be pouring into one another. Ruth was willing to be mentored by Naomi. Man, she had the perfect out. Her husband died. Well, I can get rid of that old woman. Go back to my family. She didn't do that. Why? Because her family worshipped a God who demanded child sacrifices. And Naomi's God promised to redeem and love and never forsake children. And then lastly, Boaz's defining event was Yahweh's love and not his money nor his career. I mean, we can only imagine how nervous Ruth was. We don't really know how long she had to wait. I mean, it says midnight, but what time did it get dark there? I'm, you know, could have been three hours, four hours. But imagine Boaz waking up. The alcohol probably hadn't worn off completely. 
His belly's still full. And here is this woman at his feet, bathed. And back in those days, you could really tell. Her cloak is on, and he can smell perfume. That means one thing. I'm yours. Take me. And he doesn't take her sexually. He respects her. And he agrees to marry her and to be her kinsman redeemer, which we're going to focus on next week. And it's interesting. You see his righteousness. Um, The one, in essence, Elimelech had sold the family land when they went to Moab during the famine. And yet, in the law of Israel, there was a statute that gave other family members the right to buy back that land for the family member who had sold it. And that was called redeeming, being my kinsman redeemer, the one who's going to come in, buy the land back, and give it to me. Now, there's nothing really to gain and and everything to lose for Boaz to do this. This is not an incredible business decision. It costs him a lot of money that he's never going to get back. It is a gift. Oh, let let me see here. You want me to buy that land for you and give it to you? Okay, that... And so what am I? Okay, well, he gets Ruth. But there's no real hint here. There's no real language here that, that he in any way manipulates anything. He genuinely has a heart for Ruth and Naomi. Isn't that beautiful? So much so that he, he says, I mean, he could have just jumped on it and said, All right, I've got this young woman at my feet that wants to marry me. All right, it's my lucky day. And yet he shows his righteousness by saying, But guess what? There's another relative that's nearer to you than, than me, and so you've got to give him first shot. I mean, how do you, how do you approach this so nonchalantly? I mean, okay, yeah, I'll do it, but if only if he says no. And that was a righteous thing and a good thing. I mean, ladies, I mean, if you ask somebody to marry you and they kind of look at you and say, well, you know, give that guy a shot first. And yet he is showing his righteousness. How in the world can he be so nonchalant? How can we have this model here that is exalted for us to see that is different from our model today? Uh, You see, Boaz was not out looking for the one to complete him. Uh, He was not out trying to find that perfect companion and that perfect friend that, that could just make his life glorious. But he says, okay, I mean, I'm willing to marry you if this other dude says no. How can he do it? I contend because he's full of the love of God. You see, and I want you to hear this, someone who is full of God's love can love. He doesn't depend upon the object of his love to invoke love. Now, this is how our dating scene looks today. I just don't know that I could love another person and so, oh, but I meet the one and their beauty, their personality, their whatever. I mean, that it factor just captivates me and oh, now I can love, I can give my life to this person. 
But you see, Boaz is not doing that. It's almost the opposite. What we see here in Boaz is, he says, I've already met the perfect one. I too have come under the wings. I have found refuge under the wings of God, the God of Israel. And therefore, I don't need someone to complete me. But it works like this. If I need anyone, it's someone that I can love. It's someone that I can bless with my, my finances and my work and everything that God has blessed me with. It's someone, if I have a need, it's someone to love. And that's precisely the pattern of God. Why did Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the God of Israel, the God of the universe, create any of us? It's not because He had need, but it's because love has to love. We don't invoke love in God. He is love. And when He pours His love into us, then we don't have a needy love that says, Oh, you've got to perform for me every day. You've got to be beautiful for me every day. You've got to invoke my love for you, and then I will love you. And oh, it's your fault if you mess up. No, I draw down on the love of God and then I can love you in all of your incompleteness. I can love you in all your sin. I can love you on your good days and I can love you on your bad days. I can love you when you betray me. Because your love is not defining me, but the God of Israel, His love. This cross is defining me. This is where I go every morning. This is where I'm drawing down love to love you. Dear friends, that's what marriage is to be. That's what relationship is to be. That's the hope and power of the gospel. So I ask you again, is the love of God in Christ, the fact that Christ lived, Christ died, Christ rose, Christ is coming again, is that the defining event of your life? Does that govern the thoughts that you have about yourself? The thoughts that you have about others? Your purpose in life, where you're moving? If not, then dear friends, that's what coming to Jesus is. It's saying what Chris's grandma said, ain't nobody going to love me like God. And believing it with all that you are, the only one that can fill this massive hole in my soul is God. And look at the height of His love. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Dear friends, that is good news. That is something worthy of giving your life up for. Giving your hopes up for. Giving your dreams up for. And saying, I want that kind of love. It's the only love I can ultimately trust. And it's the only love that I can really give myself to that will not let me down. Friends, it's the love that you're looking for when you're working so hard to be a success, to feel like you are a success. Some ladies, it's the love that you're looking for by manipulating a man into loving you, by giving him sex or sexual favors or presenting this image of yourself, you don't need that. You don't have to seduce God. God is pursuing you right now, and He's the only one that can love you like you have genuinely been created to be loved. Would you give your heart to Him this morning? Are you so mad at your husband or wife and thinking, they're just not loving me well enough? Dear friends, don't be bitter. Neither are you. (laughs) 
ask them. I promise you. They'll tell you. But there's one that can love you. There's one who is the love that you're looking for and his name is Jesus. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took, after giving thanks, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is for you. And after the supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this. Eat this bread. Drink this cup. Because when you do, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. You know what he was saying? I'm your lover. I'm your lover so much, I want you to put these elements in your worship. I want you to regularly hold it up and let remind yourself, drink me in, eat me in, ingest me in, and know that I choose you. Dear friends, if you're not willing to drink in that love today, abstain from these tables. But please don't leave this church. Let's be the community of God and talk to each other. Let's be the community of God and help each other understand these elements so that more might believe. But this is not your table. Quite yet. If you've never believed before and you've heard something in the sermon today and you say, you know what, the gospel's just clear to me, Jesus is clear to me like it's never been before, that's how it happens. How it happened to me. I was sitting in a chair just like you with my thoughts on anything other than God and that at the end it was on anything but God. No, that's not the way to say it. It was on God alone. So dear friend, if that's you this morning, you don't even know what happened to you. Come to the table and eat and drink for the first time. Living bread, living juice that will well up into eternity. I want to do something different today. Uh, I learned this from someone recently. And this is not a command. Don't feel guilty if you're not, if you don't feel like doing it. Um, but as we go to the table today, I think it might be a good tradition for us to look at those around us, our spouse, our children, our parents, our friends, and just simply say, please forgive me, a sinner. And then if someone speaks those words to you, I would love for you to say, God forgives and I forgive you too. How are we going to become the people of God? We've got to get serious about our relationships. We've got to stop playing games and we've got to move toward each other as sinners who need forgiveness. That's what we all are. So look at somebody in the next few minutes or on your way up. You can say it to me. I'm about to say it to you. And say, please forgive me, a sinner. And I hope that you will say, God forgives you and I forgive you too. So I want to do that now. And I want it to be sincere. Please forgive me, downtown church, for I'm a sinner. God forgives you, and I forgive you too. Say that to somebody now as we prepare to come to this table. Why don't you stand up as we prepare to come to this table? You may have to move across the room. <laughs> you may have to just bow your head quietly. 
But let's just hold off the music, and I'm going to let the table um, speak for itself.